Continued interviews from Studio HFL are made possible through the support of Messina Covers, Eastman Music Company, Pickett Blackburn, S.E. Shires, and through the generosity of Patreon subscribers. Trumpet players can be kind of picky when it comes to cases, perhaps even more so than other brass instrumentalists. If you have an idea for a custom case, then Messina Covers has your solution for completely custom case designs, even down to crazy color schemes. Let's not forget about options for mouthpiece pouches, or pretty much anything you'd want to keep protected in a custom case. Check them out at MessinaCovers.net. If you're looking for excellence in trumpets, trombones, horns, and tubas, you need look no further than the Eastman Music Company and S.E. Shires. Eastman offers a complete line of brass instruments, from the beginner all the way up to the professional. And you know they're invested in creating a quality product when the legendary Doc Severinsen helped design Eastman's beginner trumpet model. You can find more information about the Eastman Music Company at EastmanWinds.com and you can learn more about the S.E. Shires line of instruments at SEShires.com. Pickett Blackburn has established themselves as a top-tier resource for trumpet players. If you haven't had a chance to try any mouthpieces available through Pickett, you can check them out online at PicketBlackburn.com. And on the Blackburn side of Pickett Blackburn, it would be worth your while to check out their incredible line of trumpets endorsed by such great musicians as Vince DiMartino. Be sure to check them out at PicketBlackburn.com, and that's Pickett with two T's. And before today's interview, just a reminder that you too can be a financial supporter for this podcast by subscribing at patreon.com slash studiohfl. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash studiohfl. There are four tiers of support, and you can choose the one that best fits your budget. Your support will help offset the cost of production for this podcast and would be greatly appreciated please consider becoming a subscriber at patreon.com slash studiohfl. And now, on to today's interview with your host, Larry Powell. Hey everybody, Larry Powell here. Today's interview with Joe Bergstaller is from July 22nd, 2020. And as I've gone back through and edited this interview for you, I was reminded of just how deeply Joe looks at music and what he does as both a performer and a teacher. I think you're going to enjoy this next little bit with Joe Bergstaller, and here we go with today's interview. And I think the first time I heard you was live with Canadian Brass here in Indianapolis. And, oh, I just, uh, based on the piece, Harlem Echoes Echoes of Harlem. Echoes of Harlem by Duke Ellington. And just truly a slack-jawed moment. And I'm like, holy cow, that's that was truly amazing. And I, I don't remember who was across from you. I don't know if it was Chris or before Chris on trumpet at that point. It would have been before Chris. What year? Do you remember what year it might have been? Oh, my gosh. No. I wouldn't even guess. Between 2001 and 2009. Yeah. Yeah. But so it uh, could have been Ryan. It could have been. Uh, it was Ryan. Yep. Yeah. It was. Oh, my so gosh. We're talking about 2001 or 2002. Yeah. yeah. But uh, great show. And, uh, and then I start seeing all kinds of things pop up on YouTube, and I don't remember the year, but it was your blue Mozart right. on the riding mower. Yeah. <laughs> and my kids love that, and I show it to my students, and I'm like, okay, now, I want you to see a serious musician in a non-serious setting, and they love it. Good. There's a great story. There's lots of stories there to start with. First of all, I'm really glad you were at that concert. Well. Um, 
that was an amazing time for me to be part of Canadian Brass. And that people ask me all the time, what was that like? And basically a fantasy <laughs> to step into a group at that time, 35 years old, and to understand you and I and people who are already pros, we understand that you, being a musician is a, a lifestyle. It's not a nine to five job. And mm-hmm. you live this. And certainly Gene and Chuck and Ronnie, they Freddie, the founders of the group, they lived this 24-7, so you're stepping into a creation that's born of their life energy, and they're not messing around. This is mm-hmm. literally their life, and so there's an element of, amongst all the fun, which is natural and organic to their personality, mm-hmm. there's an element of seriousness that I just really appreciated, because every minute detail was poured over many times and analyzed and torn apart and put back together and every moment in the show and that was just to step into that kind of momentum and I've been doing that as a soloist but no of course you're talking about the greatest brass group of all time that they Mm -hmm. created Mm -hmm. and there's nothing like that original group truly so and I don't kid myself and when people talk about how great the iteration was that I was in it was a fantastic group. And it's never like the originals of anything that actually risked everything in their lives <laughs> to, to build something, right? Mm-hmm. So that was an amazing time, I have to say. And there's still mentors and teachers, and, and I admire mm-hmm. them so much. And I love them so much. They're amazing. Uh, yeah, all, you're right. The, the original group was special, truly special. Yeah. But what's amazing is the quality of that group really has stayed yes. just absolute top shelf, yeah. even with all the changes in personnel. It's remarkable. And to look at the talent that's come through there right. is it's a who's who in the world of brass players. Now, you said don't get something me wrong. Though. I don't I don't get to take anything away from like the current iteration, I think is amazing, too. You know? Oh, they're fantastic. And uh, Chris Coletti was in there for 10 years and we're tightly connected and I think he's amazing mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. and yeah I just have so much admiration for those guys who started mm-hmm. from from nothing they created they they conceptualized that group from nothing and just to be around them for so many years and get to hear all the stories not as a fan but mm-hmm. as a human and to really truly understand how hard they worked and how much they sacrificed to build this thing that changed has so far changed millions of people's lives lives from i remember seeing them on pbs when i was a kid <laughs> and then trying to emulate them in high school you probably have a similar experience and, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that literally changed our lives that changed our life path our career path going forward mm-hmm. trying to be like them so then to be on stage with them for for me was just about eight years it was amazing mm-hmm. amazing i was trying to do the math a second ago you said you joined them when you were 35 i was 30 i was the youngest at that point to join the group yeah so that puts you almost 50. And I'll edit that out if you don't want to it's admit okay. to I'm that. I'm 49 years old. I started playing trampoline when I was four. You don't look and, a day uh, over 30. Yeah, baby. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> so what's the best? You still look like a kid, truly. Yeah. It's, but it's the yeah. trumpet that keeps us young, right? So that video you liked came from my first crossover CD. And I grew up playing what you might call jazz. That was how I started. But that video, I was going to ask you, said your kids liked it. So when I made that video, and this lawnmower video, I'm sure you'll link to it here. But (laughs) it was a promo video for this crossover CD called 
uh, Mozart's Blue Dreams and other crossover fantasies. Mm-hmm. And it was followed up by another one called Bach's Secret Files and mm-hmm. more crossover fantasies. And the whole project was about what if the great composers of yesterday, yesteryear tra- time travel to the, the future, present day, and then and got a hold of YouTube and had at their fingertips the access, the incredible access that we take for granted of, mm-hmm. to all these genres and styles and how would it affect their compositional style. So not just playing like the head of the tune and then improving over the tune, but mm-hmm. actually like pulling it apart and putting it back to, together mm-hmm. with this fantasy in mind. And so that lawnmower video was part of the Mozart Rondo alla Turca interpretation. Mm-hmm. And it has my Austrian humor in it. I'm, Aust- I'm Austrian, <laughs> first generation American. But, and it had two life cycles, this video. The first helped my very first jazz CD, if you want to call it that, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. get on the top 50 jazz radio charts first week. Wow. And then it had a life of its own afterwards where I started getting emails from parents of mostly four to five year old boys, four, four or five year old boys, because I didn't. They had, and I found out that apparently I have the humor of a four year old. Fantastic. And they loved the video because there's a character and there's machinery and there's a bad guy and I'm the bad guy. Mm-hmm. And then the, the the cop is actually my father. Oh um, no, kidding! Yeah, this is all shot at my parents' house to yeah. visit, and so I find that amazingly. The following holds true for any creative endeavor that if you set out to make it successful, that's not going to happen. If you set out to be original, uh, not in a way that's different than anyone, but authentic to yourself, Mm -hmm. then you have a great chance of being successful with a project or a release or something like that. And that's that's what that video is a representation Mm -hmm. of. That was a labor of love. And I just wanted also to do something with my parents so my mom is behind the camera with with me framing the shots mm-hmm. and my father's on camera acting and I got to do something with them that's yeah and it's some, something about that resonates the authenticity resonates through to people and maybe they can't articulate exactly why they're drawn mm-hmm. to it but there's an enthusiasm and an, and our heartfeltness that people you can't fake it the first time through you're watching and it's fun and then maybe the fifth or sixth time through you're watching and you're like okay this is really good like from a musical standpoint, this is really good. Thanks. And then the 11th time through, you're like, okay, you start to tear things apart. And some of the things that you mentioned, okay, this is not just a play the head improvise thing. It was a really, you recognize the craft that went into that. And I have to tell you, what year did that come out? 2005. So up until just after that video, I didn't know how shooting videos worked. I didn't know you recorded in the studio and then basically overdubbed. So here I'm thinking you're actually playing on the lawnmower. A little yeah. light bulb went off on that. But Actually, uh, I'm thinking maybe 2009. But I fell in, in love with video filmmaking in 2001. My first year with Canadian, we were in a movie called Perfect mm-hmm. Pie. And the actor you might best uh, recognize in that film is Rachel McAdams. Oh, yeah, my future wife, yes. The Canadian, the Canadian actress. <laughs> and and it was a movie about opera singers. Jean's wife is a really well-known film director. For example, The Red Violin is her company's film, right? Wow. Yeah. And so she put us in this film. It was a two-day shoot for 30 seconds uh, of material. Mm-hmm. And I saw how they put things together, and I saw how – I saw the actor's craft. I thought that was amazing, too, that – these actors, you could put in front of the camera and do 50 takes, and they're going to have virtually identical body language, 
same pacing of the, the dialogue. Again, the same thing you noticed in my little video in a feature mm -hmm. film. Man, they, they are so amazing. Mm -hmm. So detail-oriented. So mm -hmm. um, it did two things for me, it, being on a film set. It got me hooked on the notion of doing something like that. And it also ruined watching movies for me forever. <laughs> right. Because yeah. I, I, now I understand how they put those things together. Mm -hmm. And that suspense of disbelief that I used to enjoy watching something, mm -hmm. movies or TV, I don't have that anymore. The same thing happened with me. I took a, a film score class. And once you start to understand how composers construct scores and, and the way that, and now how it's evolved into soundscapes, it's, you have a whole new appreciation for that. And sometimes you get distracted by thinking about that rather than following the action on the screen. Yeah. So I want to go back though. You said sure. that the original Canadian brass, they were, they sacrificed, yes, but and they were risk takers. But see, I think that's what makes those endeavors like you with with the lawnmower video that's taking a risk yeah it is. and so you weren't trying to succeed necessarily you're taking a risk and look what happens yeah but i was i i knew it was taking a risk but that also as that's can't be part of your onus part of your method just mm -hmm. to be creative i i tend to stay out of controversy or politics attached to music amen yeah i'm so, with you um, i i I don't even like the word politics. I think music is about bringing together people from different backgrounds, different viewpoints, people who look different. And eventually we change each other and we evolve together. So I do staying away from things that would immediately put one off and not invite them into that process of evolution mm -hmm. together. And I think music is the most powerful force we have for change in the world because that's what it's for. But it's, there's so many different ways to experience the same experience. If you have mm -hmm. two people in a relationship, music is a relationship. So if you have 30 people, whatever it is, human beings don't react well to someone else trying to label their own experience for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the risk is really, uh, most people, and I'm sure you would agree, having had, we both have experience. Risk, the, I think most people finally you arrive at the notion of risk is just being yourself mm -hmm. and putting that out there and will people accept it or are you supposed <laughs> to pretend like you're something else mm -hmm. in hopes of acceptance and I don't know about you but for me it's pretty cut and clear as far as the result mm -hmm. and it doesn't make it easier for me to be myself in the world mm -hmm. um, but I, I more and more I'm getting better at doing that mm -hmm. I, I feel that again like on the most basic human level you can't really hide anything people know and if they can't articulate it they'll see through it somehow and avoid you, you mm -hmm. know, or they won't resonate they won't what you do or what you say or how you know they won't resonate with them but see those are the people that everybody wants to work with those are the people that everybody wants to buy a ticket to go here in concert or see in a movie, those people that are sincere and are themselves, I think, because being genuine, I, I think you make a great point. That's being yourself is the most important thing. I would agree. I don't know about people, how people feel about going towards me, but I know that's who my, I'm attracted to mm -hmm. when I listen to artists and when I go to concerts. That's, 
and again, I, I don't, I'm not intellectually tra- attracted to them because of those qualities, but if I try to break it down afterwards, and one of the perks about being in the business is that you don't only just go to the concert, you get to meet them and hang out mm-hmm. with them, and then you really see who they are, and then he, and I am attracted to those in the end who are the same offstage that mm-hmm. they are on stage, right? They're not acting. Well, and so this is exactly the experience that I'm having in every one of these interviews and interactions with in person with people like Rex and Doc is they're exactly who I thought they were and they are so approachable and I've had a blast talking to every every person and they are exactly who I thought they were which is not to lessen anything but it's like hey these are real people with great experiences to share and Everybody has a story to tell. Some people are so reluctant to talk. It's, I've tried to entice people to do the interview. Oh, you know, I don't have anything to say. And I finally get them in an interview and I can't keep them quiet. <laughs> you know? It's just, but just, I think they're, they're the humility, right? They want to stay humble and right. I can appreciate that. Well, and then when you, when we speak with our students about that, how do we make that accessibility? How do we ramp that up for them? Because it, I think it's what I've found too, speaking about these things with younger musicians mm-hmm. is I think they look at where we are and they say, okay, sure, you can do that now because you are where you are. <laughs> and I think it's important if you have younger listeners that you and I have not arrived. Doc has not arrived. Doc's still practicing <laughs> four to six hours a, a day and he's 93. Mm-hmm. Yo-Yo Ma still takes lessons. Mm-hmm. So the I think it's great that you interviewed Jeff Nelson before we're fast friends for decades now right mm-hmm. he has a saying that i co-opt but i always give him credit for that mm-hmm. the life of a musician is that every day you try to improve and then you die and i don't know if he still uses that saying but yeah up with it and i that's it's the life of a musician is not pursuit but it's it's form right every day we pursue uh, we i don't know it's like yoga for us Although some of us do yoga, I'm not doing. <laughs> I could explain this better. Well, mm-hmm. I guess it's the pursuit of excellence, the pursuit of, of connection, authenticity, mm-hmm. those kind of things every day. And those are super small building blocks mm-hmm. over the course of time. And once in a while, it seems like a leap, but mm-hmm. it, there are no leaps. So it, for younger <laughs> people, and they're also like, well, how would I do that on excerpt? Well, there are appropriate things. Or appropriate circumstances you can't make an excerpt a wild interpretation that has nothing to do with what the composer wanted or <laughs> you know the collective that you're performing with at the mm-hmm. time you know that so then the, i think they'd get trapped and that they have to be at least the ones i've worked with in a lot i've worked with a lot at this point they feel this kind of catch-22 where they're encouraged to be their themselves and authentic but when they do that they're not fitting in mm-hmm. the mold of what they're expected. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a great middle to find. And maybe the way to get there is philosophically, which is, I like to say music is a, a, a relationship. So you got the, the musician or musicians, you got the audience, which is probably, to me, the most important part of the relationship. And the third part is the composer, usually not there, but they've left their life energy again mm-hmm. there with mm-hmm. their music because it's taken their entire life to get to the point where they can write like that it's taken our entire life until now to get to the point where we're playing mm-hmm. like that 
and it's taking the audience's entire life you get there <laughs> to the concert and they're giving mm-hmm. us two hours they'll never ever get back like right you imagine them on their deathbed and saying oh man i wish i would didn't go to that concert by Birkstall. <laughs> you just phoned it in i could have had those two hours back you right. kidding plus they pay and it takes all of us to experience the music capital m which is mm-hmm. a relationship and so as musicians we have to co-create even if it's a, a through composed composition we still have to give our life energy into it and there yeah. at the very least even if you're playing an excerpt you got to phrase it and there are a thousand ways to phrase and they're all right as long as you play it with conviction absolutely compelling and you're a tour guide through the music and that's mm-hmm. our and then if there's a if there are i would say more opportunities to be creative on the moment even improvise in the moment whatever the music allows mm-hmm. you to do or the construct you've agreed upon then you can maybe be more yourself but even with a through comp, a through composed thing you still can have personality yeah last thing i'll say about that is that personal individual in this and personality and creativity originality mm-hmm. uh, is not predicated on being different than anyone else mm-hmm and we know that from mm-hmm. jazz too, right? Absolutely. You do, you do your first solo and you're laying it down and you do your second solo and lay it, laying it down. And if you're experienced, then you walk away. Mm-hmm. Michael Brecker only gave two solos per session yeah. because after that, you start comparing it to the material it just wrote down and now it's <laughs> not present in the moment anymore. You're, mm-hmm. you're competing with something mm-hmm. and that'll get you off track too. I had a student my first year teaching college he came in and he's like, I want to sound like Miles Davis. I said, that's great. Early miles or late miles? I don't know. Or I mid said, miles. He changed or mid miles. three times Davis did. yeah. But he's, I don't know. And I said, who do you think Miles was listening to at the beginning of his career? Yeah. And who was Miles listening to at the end of his career? Very different ears. Yeah. And I said, the way Miles grew is the way you have to grow. You have to listen. You have to absorb everything. And that will become you. That will be your voice, your personality later on. Right. And I, I hope that sounds good. I, I agree it, completely with that. I would take it I would take it a step further that if you really want to understand those people that you admire, if you want to understand Ronnie, you have to start you have to start by listening to the people he listened to. Mm-hmm. And then if you look at history, and that's certainly the history of music, whether you're famous or not, you're standing on someone else's shoulders. Mm-hmm. Didn't we didn't get here alone? And they didn't get there alone. And now you've got a family tree and a lineage, and you start to understand that music is about we, not me. Mm-hmm. That goes back to something you just said a second ago about the relationship. I, I created a poster for my studio, and it says the question at the top Should I practice today? And then underneath it says Ask the composer, ask your conductor, ask your colleagues, ask your audience, ask yourself because it's not just about you, right? It's about all of those things that hopefully come together because it's supposed to be shared, right? This is not just a practice room endeavor. Yeah, and the relationship metaphor, I think, well, it's not a metaphor, but it's true of any relationship that a major reason, if not the major reason, relationships might fail or keep going even though they're majorly unhealthy is because the relationship is more about one person than another mm-hmm. no and a, a relationship mm-hmm. is about giving yourself to the relationship mm-hmm. and people say compromise in a relationship like it's a bad word 
no, you're really fusing with the other people in the relationship. And that's, again, what's amazing about music. So, you, and have you done any work in El Sistema? Uh, no, I know the surface about it. Yeah. That's it. El Sistema is a philosophy, came out of Venezuela, and it's music for social change. And so I got into it because my wife has is, is been into food for decades. And she's in this really great movie called Crescendo, The Power of Music, done by Jamie Bernstein, uh, Leonard mm-hmm. Bernstein's daughter. And yeah. so through her, I got into it. And it is music at its purest form, right? It was conceptualized in Venezuela to really, because at that time, it was such challenging circumstances. It, the saying was, if you either put a trumpet in their hand or a gun. and But then the deeper message was that the orchestra and the band and the musical ensemble can be and should be the perfect model for how mm-hmm. society should work. So people, again, from different backgrounds, they look different. They have different religious or theological or spiritual or political or whatever beliefs, but they're mm-hmm. meeting and their goal is harmony. Mm-hmm. And there's a leadership structure and and we embrace our roles and we uplift each other mm-hmm. and and that's the way the world should work. And so we're in the most challenging times we can remember right now in the world. <laughs> and I think a lot of people on Facebook and social media are saying, look, look how valuable the arts are because that's what everyone's turning to under these times of duress. And I think they're wrong. I think they're wrong. I think they're missing the real point. The, the point shouldn't be passive um, viewership of the arts. It shouldn't be intake. It should be looking at that philosophy of what is pursued in, in music, mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. in the ensemble, and figuring out how to operate that way. Mm-hmm. You know, and that I think that's the real lesson. When you're a passive fan, and that's the way to start, got to start that way but yeah can't end there yeah it's um byron stripling and i've used this in a couple interviews that guy's amazing musician yes but what i realized as i interviewed him was he is wise and brilliant but he said something that i it truly resonates with me and i share it uh, all the time now he said when we come out on the other side of this we owe it we have such a responsibility to the world to show up and because he said they need us now more than ever and it's not he wasn't talking about the online exchange he's talking about that exchange in the concert hall or in the recording studio or the rehearsal space because sometimes it's not just an audience i miss sitting next to my colleagues and making music even in rehearsal and it, there's an exchange there's that relationship and i just think he's right we and the world is hungry right now for that again which is why i think so many people are risking <laughs> going out i think they should stay home but those are my two cents yeah. i'm staying home but we're staying home as well we just don't we don't know enough yet i agree with you though uh, i would even narrow it down to more uh, something more specific and I'll, I'll tie it into one of the reasons i moved my wife and I moved mm-hmm. to Phoenix. So I, this is, I just finished my first year. We're about to enter our second year here at Phoenix. Congratulations. Thanks. So I took my teacher's position. David, yeah. David Hickman was my teacher here when I was a student at ASU. Mm-hmm. And so I've succeeded him. And in so many ways, it's a dream come true. 
And one of the things we decided to do when we got here, so Phoenix is a bustling metropolis. We're about six million if you, in the metro mm -hmm. Phoenix area, which is about six cities put together. Mm -hmm. And when I was a student here, there was some physical distance. And since then, it's now it's a metropolis, right? Mm -hmm. More of an LA type than a New York type. When I was mm -hmm. in New York for 20 plus years, great, but this is the best of everything. Lots mm -hmm. of people, lots of culture, some distance, but one of our goals, and we did it, is to start joining community ensembles. Mm. Because I missed being part of something, so did she. We both grew up. Just think about the reason we get into music in the first place is our experiences as children, and our mm -hmm. experience as children is, in music is pure. Mm -hmm. We're, I'm like, the band is the best class Right, because you get to be there and you're having fun, and we don't even know how much we're learning. We're changing, the, <laughs> changing our brain structure. We're mm -hmm. enhancing our everything that we, you know, that all the benefits of music that, that you can get from just having fun and participating. And then it gets adulterated. It gets it gets ruined by trying to be a professional musician because you're attaching mm -hmm. this thing that is it doesn't belong in music pressure of uh, mm. finance and making a living and those mm -hmm. kind of things because then it you're even the best of us you still have that baggage you're dragging along beside you and, and that's not where the purity of music comes in it's you want to give without expectation of receiving and if if you're giving so you can receive and make a living now you've adulterated the experience mm -hmm. of music mm -hmm. and and even though i believe in that i'm not I'm human, so it's. Mm -hmm. I know I get paid for what I do, and mm -hmm. it's in there. Except, I don't get. I don't get paid for playing in the community band here. Mm -hmm. I get to play third cornet, and my wife plays second trumpet. And I get to flirt with my wife the whole rehearsal, <laughs> just like it would have been if we were in an ensemble in high school together, and still play. And mm -hmm. and it's not about me. The 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 light's not on me. I'm not getting paid for it, and it's mm -hmm. back to this pure experience. And everyone is there. Mm -hmm. and, and we're varying skill levels is fine. Mm -hmm. Everyone is there for the same purpose, like to be part of something, to have fun together. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so that I think that's what everyone needs, that sort of communal experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, this is going to feel like a hard left turn, okay. that's <laughs> but that's okay. I, I, you're the first one who's really gotten to some nuts and bolts of the why we do what we do. And that's still, I'm going to be processing that for some time, Ed, but I love what you said. So yeah, let's talk about this David Hickman thing. He was there for how long? Wow, um, I don't know how many years Dave was at the position for at ASU, let's see. At least 30 years. Yeah. yeah. And you and many other terrific musicians came through his studio. What That's a, what kind of wild, right? But what a, what a recognition of both his teaching ability and you as your own, you know, as a student and then as a performer, to come back to your alumni where you graduated. Yeah, uh, <laughs> alma mater. Alma, alma mater. mater, thank you very much. That's the fancy term. <laughs> We're getting fancy now. Yes, thank you so much for that. That's pretty special. Yeah, it's, it's right out of a fairy tale. Mm -hmm. yeah. I don't even know what to say. It's just embarrassing, uh, an embarrassing uh, embarrassment of riches, what they say, right? Yeah. yeah. And now I'm not, I had gone on to look a little bit. I know, of course, you have 
undergrad and master's program. Do you do doctoral yeah. Uh, yeah. level there? Yeah, mm-hmm. we have doctorates. And so my, my fr- so teaching is a teaching is an interesting business, right? <laughs> There's all sorts of go- ways of going up about it. I approach it. Teaching is. I always wanted to be a teacher. Music. I would, did not get a music ed degree. If, if I went back and advised myself when I was 17 and I started college, I would have said do both because I ended up basically studying both anyway. Mm-hmm. And then that spoke forward in my career where I had a real interest in not just going to a place and being on stage and then leaving, but I wanted to be part of the community. So when I became a soloist in New York through Columbia Artists, I did residencies everywhere I went. 60 mm-hmm. solo concerts a year I did and got... Mm-hmm into each community and worked with the bands like Mendez and mm-hmm. that's something Dave had instilled in me and but it's the same attention to detail is the same devotion on both sides both teaching and performing are different versions of sharing and so it's interesting like I have to be I choose to be as invested in my student success as I am in my own success mm-hmm. I don't take responsibility nor praise for their success because that would break again you can't like mm-hmm. it's the same thing as performing right or giving in a relationship you can't give that expectation of receiving mm-hmm. it's such an interesting business it, there's so much opportunity and it's what my 14th year of teaching at college level mm-hmm. the first 13 were at, at Peabody mm-hmm. and just wanting them to succeed knowing that the obstacles in front of them that ultimately would be rewarding but Mm -hmm. what I'm trying to say is you have to be so invested in your students it's going to cost you sleep at first right yeah and (laughs) what's shifted for me here there are at least a few wonderful things that have shifted it's inexpensive here so I love that about the tuition Right? Mm-hmm. That the tuition is affordable. If you have good grades, you can go to school here for free. Wait, even me? <laughs> well, mostly, mostly undergrads get that, okay, okay. that really delicious academic scholarship. That's fantastic. What an yeah, incentive. It is. And then it's a comprehensive education. So like one of the benefits of going here for me when I was a student was I'm not saying I'm not describing all this great. So I'm going to tell you a story instead. That okay that's great okay and this will describe Dave's, Dave's influence on me how mm-hmm. it changed me and then how I believe it changes my students and empowers them mm-hmm. and so when I was here as a student I would come into my lessons and I had a nominal orchestra gig with the Virginia Opera when I was 14 and mm-hmm. I had a taste of the music business those were pros and I saw how hard they had to work. I saw that this was not a limousine business. I saw mm-hmm. this was real. Mm-hmm. Then I came to school, and after my first year, I realized that I, I wanted to be just like Dave. He was a soloist and a chamber musician, and mm-hmm. he was doing between 60 and 70 concerts with orchestra a year. He had the same wow. brass quintet. He started the Summit Brass. He started his mm-hmm. own record label. And I looked at him. I'm like, I want to do that. So I started copying him which is the best way of learning. So I'd go in my lessons, and for example, and he'd say, you sound great on that solo. He says, but it's going to be different with large ensemble. Mm-hmm. And I would say, what do you mean? He says, I could tell you're going to have to play louder, but that's not the only thing. You're just going to have to do it. 
okay. Mm-hmm. And he looked at Dave and he just did things. He made things happen. He mm-hmm. created and he meant he still invents, right, with his publishing company. So mm-hmm. here's what I did. Well, here we are in the middle of today's interview. Just a reminder that support for this podcast comes from Messina Covers, who has you covered, literally, for all of your custom case needs. The Eastman Music Company, providing excellence from the professional model to the beginner model. And of course, Pickett Blackburn, providing you with a multitude of options for mouthpieces and trumpets. Now, back to the interview. Here's what I did. I got phone numbers of all his former music education students. I went to our music education director, Doc Fleming, and I got phone numbers in the Valley. And there were about three and a half million people here at the time. And I called, and I I came up with a 30-second pitch. Nowadays, you would call that an elevator pitch. And I called these band directors, and I would introduce myself, ask if they were available to talk at that moment, told them who who my connection to them was and when because this about this is still a business about who every business is about who they were very nice to me and then I said okay you know in my I'm in my third year here at ACU I would like to be a professional soloist and chamber musician and I need more experience doing that I am proposing to you that I come and I barter I would I'm offering you uh, free sectionals free brass master classes and even some free lessons to some of your students, if you would let me solo with your band. Mm-hmm. They all said yes. So I'd do 10 of these a semester. Mm-hmm. I set up Dave's huge VHS camera in the back of the <laughs> auditorium, and it was amazing because I got to play each concert for about 500 real people, mm-hmm. not musicians, mm-hmm. you know, real people. And I found that I was really good at trumpet and not great at soloing. I found it an aptitude for it, but it was very different than performing for my peers. Mm-hmm. And so I got better at that. And what I, was the difference? What, what did you perceive there? There's some musical differences I'll show you. I had met Al Vizzuti around that time too, and and I really liked the tuku-tuku stuff he did, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the double octave. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I worked that into I'm playing C trumpet, but I worked that into <laughs> Macarena, right? You know that cadenza, but in the middle, of it, if it goes, right? And so I figured oh, I'm, I'm going to put the tuku tuku stuff in there, like mm-hmm. Alan Dean used to say tuku. Uh, mm-hmm. Alan Mazzuti didn't call it tuku, <laughs> but so I did this instead. clean to practice that mm-hmm. and my trumpet friends would go nuts and then I would do it in front of a normal audience and they were like <laughs> they didn't get it yeah because it, it, it because it wasn't about music it was just about playing fast and impressing and mm-hmm. so that was that was a lesson that took me a little while to learn mm-hmm. um, but it, it, I don't know if I can verbalize it I think it's different for everyone except it's the difference between sharing and proving. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And once you really, again, that align, learn about that relationship of music and that the audience is, is not there to watch you. They're there to participate with you mm-hmm. in their corner. So that I don't think I was verbalizing at that time. I was 20 years old. But, mm-hmm. um, 
but I was that was following Dave's model, and nowadays we call that entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. And so I did that, and I also created my own brass ensemble, my own brass quintet with Tim Northcutt, and then later mm-hmm. John Lofton, and pursued everything we could. I started learning how to arrange, so I would do my own arrangements. Henry Charles Smith was our orchestra conductor. Uh, he was the Phillies principal trombonist on the original Gabrielli, mm-hmm. Gabrielli mm-hmm. call them. And I started recruiting my own audiences and filling the halls up and by going to these high schools and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. bringing them in. And then my teachers started for gratis soloing with the, the, on the programs I was putting together. (laughs) And then Henry Charles let my brass ensemble open up an official ASU orchestra concert. Like it was, and I, this is still true no matter where you go. If you show effort and hustle, it will be rewarded. Right, teachers, you and I, we see that in our students. We're like, thank you. How can I help you? Like, you have all my resources. I will do right. everything to enable you to get to the next level. And Dave did that with me, and so did Gail Wilson, trombonist, mm-hmm. and Tom Bacon, and Dan Parentoni, and then Sam Palafian, who's another one mm-hmm. of my mentors on top of those guys. And so it just grew. And is this story boring, or can I tell this you? This is, uh, no, it, it's absolutely wonderful. Okay, so this is also spoking back into what you and I were talking about earlier, like how does a student get to where we are? Mm-hmm. So I started doing these things in college, and then I, I wanted to be a full-time soloist and educator because I learned. So here's the beauty of it. Beauty of it. I loved teaching, and by going out and doing it, I was teaching what I know. We only can mm-hmm. teach what we know still as, as professionals, and... So I started categorizing at these high schools I was volunteering at what I was good at. I could teach improvisation to classical musicians because I started in an improv background when I was really young. A visualization because David exposed me to a sports psychologist and I learned mm-hmm. how to visualize and I was how to get into college as a, a music major. Things that I knew how to do, mm-hmm. I started teaching. And so then I took it a a little bit farther and I spent my entire life savings. It was just 3,600 bucks at that point <laughs> and laid down the recording mm-hmm. and it was up Mendez stuff. And my plan was I was going to do this project centering centered around Mendez who did very much the same thing. He created out of nothing, this notion of the trumpet soloist and a very healthy career that was in all so varied between playing in Hollywood and playing in front of orchestras or university bands or high school bands and teaching and and recording and arranging and composing. So you can see where Dave is influenced by him and so am I. He's also my hero and did all this and I put down the recording. I got everyone I had met at that point through Summit Brass to give me quotes and I'm like, I don't think I can make it here in the States, but I bet I could make it in Europe. So I got my press kit in German. <laughs> so I have an uncle who plays jazz sax. I'm mm-hmm. like, okay, he'll just show it to his friends and I'll, I'll be an overnight success. Of course, I never got any bookings. <laughs> but I, every day, just like I was talking about Chuck and Gene and Ronnie taking those minutia apart and putting them back together and seeing if they fit and what you need to polish and mm-hmm. you keep it, do you blow it up? We know I was doing that with the project. I was doing that with my playing and I was doing that with my plan for my career. And I had an outline that I would pull apart, put back together. I had this recording 
And at the time, I thought it went nowhere. And I made it to New York shortly thereafter because I won an audition with the Meridian Arts Ensemble, which is mm. a, a brass uh, quintet and percussion group dis, uh, disguised. It's really a modern music group. Yeah. Which and they're a, fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> and that's another one of my real deep loves. So I did modern music for the first seven years in New York. So I'm there for three years in New York. And Meridian, a couple of the, the guys, they've been in it for many years and they've decided for different reasons that they may, they might want to quit their instrument or take a sabbatical or those kind of things. And those are normal occasions in life. Mm-hmm. And it prodded me to, to pick up the phone on a Thursday. Here's where the story gets good. So you can just like bookmark here. <laughs> okay, got this it. Is the moral of the story for the <laughs> students. On a Thursday at 5 o'clock, I called John Kittredge, who was the VP at, at Columbia Artist at that time. Mm-hmm. And and I had met him through Meridian, and I said, John, I, I might have some more time coming up because Meridian's going to slow down, and I've always wanted to be a soloist. And I gave him my pitch, what I used to do in Phoenix, and I said, and which was residencies. Mm-hmm. And he says, that sounds fantastic. And he says, do you have a recording? I said, yeah, I do. <laughs> he says, how fast can you get here? I said, if I take the A train and I run 27 minutes, mm-hmm. and he says, run. <laughs> and I'm like, John, I haven't even shaved. Like, I've been on the phone all day with presenters. He says, shut up, run. Okay. So I showed up at his office 27 minutes later. It's 527. Mm-hmm. I sh- gave him my cassette because he couldn't press CDs at that point. Mm-hmm. Puts it in his cassette player because everyone had cassette players. And he listens right. and he says, this is fantastic. And it was. Why? Mm-hmm. It's because I had been doing that for years. Mm-hmm. I put like a, everything we do in the practice room minute by minute had led up to years to this. this, And, and he says, when can you have a proposal ready? I said, when do you need it? He says, tomorrow. <laughs> At 9 a.m. is our final artist selection committee meeting. I need it tomorrow at 9 a.m. Okay. <laughs> so one of the other things I had done was watch Dave, and I had learned how to do spreadsheets and financial analyses. And 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 I had made a press kit before for this project, but in German, 4 o'clock in the morning, I, I'm at the Kinko's Around from the Letterman Theater at that point, and I'm yeah. color binding these things. And I show up at his, his office and drop it cassettes and the proposal and, and it has nice pictures and mm-hmm. and uh at nine o'clock and i had my suitcase with me because i was going to prague for a modern music festival mm-hmm. and i land in prague and i spent my entire per diem money which is 27 dollars <laughs> and i called home and there's a message on my answering machine that says congratulations you're a soloist on the roster wow and i had no work yet and then three months later, you had to do a showcase in Carnegie Hall in a while. So like for students, when anyone in the brass world, except if you're Chris Bodie, perhaps, <laughs> actually fills up Carnegie Hall, or if you play in an orchestra that plays the large Carnegie Hall, the rest of us were talking about while concert hall or Zirkel, mm-hmm. one of those. Mm-hmm. So it was while. And it was filled up with presenters. And I got up and played 20 minutes and I talked. And I killed it. It wasn't perfect, mm-hmm. but it was at that 93 to 97 percentile we try to live in. Mm-hmm. We call mm-hmm. that consistency. And the only reason I could do that is because I had done it over and mm-hmm. over free at all of these high schools. And I developed a, a rhythm from my speaking. I developed, believe it or not, I know you can't tell from the interview. And I developed <laughs> you know, I, consistency. And, and so it went really well. And I went straight from that showcase back to Prague for a different modern music festival. Mm-hmm. So I had my suitcase backstage again. 
and I spent my per diem money. I think it had gone up by three bucks at this point to thirty yeah. bucks. And he calls and he calls three times and he says, "My first call was." He says, "We're half an hour into our booking season. Booking season is three months long. Mm-hmm. You already have twenty-seven concerts, and then so an hour and a half." And this is third call. He says, well, we're an hour and a half in. We've cut you off at 64 concerts. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and we'd like to have a meeting with you when you come back, please. Okay. So I called him when I got back. And we went in and we sat down. And these are all the big wigs around this big table. Mm-hmm. And sat down. And, and they said, congratulations. I said, thanks. Mm-hmm. He said, we're concerned. I said, so am I. <laughs> And they said, first of all, and congratulations, you're, you're booking-wise, number of bookings, you're the most successful soloist we've had on this roster since Van Cliburn. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> just a, Let's not get too excited. It's just the numbers, not the quality. And I said, thanks. And, I, and they said, but we have a con- we were concerned. I said, so am I. And they said, what are you concerned about? I said, you go first. They <laughs> <laughs> said, no, can one embouchure last through 64 concerts? Uh-huh. Yeah, sure. They said, okay. So what are you concerned about? I said, what about next year? And they said, what do you mean? I said, we got 64 for this year, but what about the year afterwards? Mm-hmm. And they said, yeah, no, we haven't had anyone that successful in many years. I said, mm-hmm. I heard you. What about the next year? Mm-hmm. And they offered me a job right there. If I ever quit trumpet to be part of that. Wow. Other, other side of the table. <laughs> wow. And that, again, that persistence, certainly I got that from my parents. Dave is also like a parent. Mm-hmm. Everything you see him do, you, you see that intensity and that, that follow through. And mm-hmm. I think as long as you can adopt that attitude, you'll be successful. Yeah. You know? That was a very inefficient way of telling that story. That was a great story. And you, you can't just do the the 30 second elevator version of that. Oh, you no. have to have the context on that. And yeah. if you watch the, your, I'm sure you'll get some metrics back from the interview. It's going to go, <laughs> everyone stopped watching right around there. No, I just remembered. I interviewed Deanna a couple of months ago and I saw her with Dallas brass. Of oh. course, that's a number of years ago. What another amazing talent and yes. person, another. And I what admire I'm, her so much in so many different ways. But I can see where all of this really has to be a dream to have colleagues who are so focused on great musicianship and the entrepreneur part of things. And I just think, holy cow, especially these days when musicians have to know both of those so well. You know, I just I wish there was a better term than entrepreneurship, because I think most schools think. Thankfully, we, Deanna runs our entrepreneurship certificate program, mm-hmm. so it's focused on the right things. But I would say most students think that's about learning how to do your taxes and putting up a website and, <laughs> and those kind of things. What it should really have is creation should be in the title of what it mm-hmm. is because we're talking about creating things. If you know anything about Deanna Swoboda, she created out of nothing. I mean, think about tuba, and I loved. I think tubists are the most musical of all brass instruments. Every tuba player I've ever played with. Heresy. Well, it's true, right? (laughs) It's true because they traditionally have the least amount of notes and they have to phrase the most. Mm. So I think the simple things are the hardest. And when they're 
phrasing and that's where you really really learn how to phrase mm. with the fewest notes possible if we go back to miles it's like too many notes <laughs> or space mm-hmm. and so I've learned the most and, and she's one of the ones I learned from and so then I'm saying that because tuba there are only three real solo instruments right violin piano and that's it sometimes cello you wouldn't include the voice in there no not in like a soloing in front of an ensemble kind of thing mm-hmm. they're soloistic but it's a different genre for me but as far as instruments those are the three right mm-hmm. so the rest of us are novelties and then you have to carve your own thing and of us novelties poor tuba players because mm-hmm. there's a stigma that a normal person's going to look at it for a tubist thing like they're, they're going upa mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they cartoonists <laughs> make jokes about of course it's not fair but then if you think about that's the landscape that she created out of nothing did she talk to you about her her tuba rap cd yeah and how i think it was jupiter because of that created a position for her out of nothing (laughs) and and that's like from nothing Mm -hmm. you know that's the ultimate creation right that's uh biblical creation and then convincing people they need it it's like the apple iphone yeah nobody needed the iphone but we were made to believe (laughs) that we needed it Huh, yeah. I think people needed it. I think, but we didn't know it at the time. You creation know? is part about, at least partly about. It's not sharking, but it's creation is about, on some level, recognizing that there's a niche or a need out there that has not yet been fulfilled, mm-hmm. and it's, yeah, yeah. You're right. It's amazing to have a colleague like her. But yeah. all my colleagues are here. It's I just yeah. It's a fantasy, and I don't even know how to articulate it. We had a faculty meeting this morning on via Zoom, and mm-hmm. we're just smiling and laughing. And mm-hmm. two hours goes by, and I'm like we got to go. I'm like, no, <laughs> stay a little longer. Yeah, yeah. Okay, a little bit of a left turn again. I, Great. Yeah, I see you as a performer, but what I really got a sense of in this last little bit is teaching. Really, is a passion. Yes. And I think people are going to, maybe I didn't see it right away, but people I think are going to see it in a heartbeat that this is who you are. And I'm not saying it defines you, but it's, yeah, he's more than just a trumpet player. And I understand the teaching thing when I started, and I think I'm starting my 14th year this time as an adjunct, but I never thought I would enjoy it as much as I am. It's an absolute blast. And I feel like it pushes me continually. And you talked, you said you can only teach what you know, but sometimes in teaching others, you start to, you learn, obviously you learn more. And then, and I also struggled so many things with so many things in my own playing. Now I've got somebody sitting next to me who's going through the same thing and say, Hey, I've been there. Let me tell you, let me tell you how we're going to get through this. And it's such a rewarding feeling to think they're not going to have to suffer as long as I did in this thinking about that because as much as I love either sitting at the back of the orchestra or at the edge of the stage with the quintet it's like the teaching really is a fulfilling part of that it really is and I, I, I would add to that I don't know how you feel about it but it's because we're a part of a lineage but again we're standing on our teachers and our parents mm. and our family's shoulders and 
the next generation, you know, it's not necessarily better. It's different. Yes. And they're doing many of the same things, but we're passing on. We're just paying it forward. And when you do that's the goosebumpy thing, isn't it? Yeah. And it's interesting. I loved what you said about, uh, I'm paraphrasing, going through our own difficulties and then mm. the end result is that we can help others go through that. I use those, I use the same, I say the same to my students all the time because, for instance, when I was seven, I had a bike accident. I had already been playing for a while and then mm-hmm. had a bike accident and my, my, my front two teeth went like this. <laughs> they don't. Yeah. Because these are all fake. But they didn't, they didn't get completely replaced until two weeks before I arrived here as a student. So they stayed like this most of my early career. And then mm-hmm. remember I got my first job when I was 14 and I was playing a lot, practicing mm-hmm. and playing. And I started developing a, what essentially was a permanent cut. I was bleeding while I was playing. Yeah. And I had a trumpet playing dentist who tried helping me three times a week, gratis, mm-hmm. free. And he was putting bonding on and then... I even had a stainless steel thing that made me look like Jaws from the Bond movies <laughs> and dental adhesive would leak out and get into my valves. And it was one of the most depressing things I'd ever gone through. Mm-hmm. and certainly one of the most challenging. And finally they shaved them off and put caps on mm-hmm. two weeks before I came out here. And I remember Dave put down his horn and he says, what did you do? <laughs> and I had to relearn how to play. And I've, since then I've had, I stopped counting at eight embouchure changes. And when was the last one? Don't say this morning. I'll tell you the most <laughs> drastic one, though, was in Indiana. I couldn't tell you what. There's a town in Indiana with a K. Kokomo? Yes. And there was a Kentucky Fried Chicken I was eating at four hours before my concert. Mm-hmm. My tooth fell out. One of my umbershoot teeth fell. Ding, ding, bounced on the plastic plate. Best concert of the season. Because? Because uh, under, under duress, when you're sick, under duress, you are not afforded to do anything except con- concentrate on every single moment <laughs> in the now. And somehow, it's not because I'm special. There's, I'm into, I do this class called Change Your Mind, Change Your Play. Mm-hmm. It's based on my, I got really interested about experiences like we're talking about and why things happen and different ways of looking at things and empowering ourselves and comes from sports psychology or behavioral science or quantum physics or some you know uh, other things in there and so what i learned about the brain if you want to look at it that way is that it narrows the bandwidth to what's absolutely necessary for survival mm-hmm. but there are a lot of other things that go on too but the long story short is i developed empathy i was just mm-hmm. until then i was a, a kid who could play and i was on the what it's like when we're young, we're recognized for being right. the best in our little pond. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm, exactly. And so empathy, and I, I wasn't like, I mean, I can swear I wasn't a bad person, but I had not developed empathy for those who were going through that because I hadn't gone through it. So mm-hmm. what I'm saying is now I've been able to be part of the recovery journey for hundreds of people who've gone through embouchure changes. Mm-hmm. I understand the emotional terminal turmoil. It mm-hmm. takes you through one. Your self identity is ripped apart because you can't do what you could, you could do before. Yeah. So there's always a reframe of that in hindsight when we go through mm-hmm. these difficulties. Okay, I went through that fire and I'm the better for it. And that's the most. That I think, especially now, 
mm-hmm. instead of the situation we're in. I don't like that word opportunity. And I think that there's too much suffering going on in the world to say, mm-hmm. oh, this is an opportunity. People are dying. It's not an opportunity. At the same time, this is not a time to mourn because it's different or lament. It's more of a time to surrender and accept and figure out what to do. Mm-hmm. And so that, I think that's where music can really help too because it's music is us constantly adapting to... It's a dynamic situation. It's not a static situation. Mm-hmm. Right? That's very deep. Again, oh. thinking about that and to think... Because I have actually used that word opportunity, because of this, there's the opportunity to talk to you and many others because of we're, we're all available. Yeah. Now, I don't feel guilty for saying opportunity because no, I'm not thinking not, of it in that. Yeah, no, you're not it, there, I know. It. Yeah. yeah. I, nowadays, I use the word circumstance mm-hmm. because that that's a little more open to those who are in pain at the moment. How are you navigating through the pandemic? What's become a focus? There's no one way I'm navigating. I don't think anyone else is navigating just one way. I think there's personal challenges. I think there's professional challenges. If there was one way, what I'm trying to do, and I don't think I'm great at it, but I'm certainly better at that than I used to be when I was younger, is stay present, stay now, stay focused at the task at hand, help people who need helping. In different ways, in the best way I can. We know when everything went down that it really disrupted a lot of people's lives, including everyone <laughs> we're connected through as teachers. And mm-hmm. it's important to be a resource. And but more than ever, I'm finding I'm having to ground myself on a daily basis. When evident, when inevitably the wind is blowing stronger nowadays, that you don't get blown over as you're trying to help someone else. Mm-hmm. Because if you let yourself get too low, if you don't maintain and, and, and take care of yourself, then you can't help others. Yeah. Much less help yourself. And But what I am telling my students, and we have these what, deeper discussions about music and our role mm-hmm. in the world and uplift others, I think a lot of people are getting um, caught up in this amazing influx of music released onto social media like Facebook but amazing and it's just a there's a volume of it I wouldn't say that there's a lot of great quality out there of the Mm. stuff people are putting out there I don't think people have figured out the online music collaboration thing (laughs) it'll get figured out but it's not Mm -hmm. there yet so everyone's doing their best and they're releasing a lot of content but I think that's the wrong thing to do. So we're in Phoenix. We're Phoenix is all on tribal land. So sometimes here we refer to tribes and with respect and with honor. And I would say the following to my students that if you look at the loose structure of tribes across the world, you usually have a medicine person and mm-hmm. you have the tribal leader and you have the hunters and gatherers and you also have a musician. And so instead of posting content on Facebook and trying to get seen or noticed or known, Mm -hmm. start by recording something for your mother and your father. Mm -hmm. What are their favorite songs? Mm -hmm. What did they used to sing to you when you were a kid? Mm -hmm. How can you reconnect to them because you're across distance? Can you record something for your grandparents? Can Mm -hmm. you go, what we've been doing is 
going out and doing pop-up happy birthdays outside our, our colleagues' <laughs> houses because everyone's inside. Like, how can literally put a smile on someone's face mm-hmm. and connect with them? And again, now we're going back to the r- real purpose of music. It's not to be known. It's not to have a great big following. And those who do have a great big following, let's say Chris Bode, is mm-hmm. one person at a time. Mm-hmm. An authentic connection and staying and talking to talking to his audience for two hours after every yeah. show and making a connect <laughs> authentically making a connection and embracing that, and so that's if, if the circumstance allows or demands for something right now, that's what it is mm-hmm. is, is reinvigorating those personal relationships and giving, mm-hmm. not making videos trying to know. It's it's I feel like so that's what you're doing with the, the podcast is you're making relationships. And you're giving to the people who are listening to them. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's successful. It's not because you're sharking it. And you definitely have a certain status in the music world and a position that you can leverage for more visibility. The younger students, the younger than you and I, don't. And mm-hmm. don't go after mm-hmm. the visibility. Go after the authentic connection. And yeah, I'm done prostitute. And I'm going to edit this out. But I was talking to my wife just yesterday about this. I said, I love playing trumpet. I truly love playing and teaching trumpet, but I feel more drawn to what I've been doing with these interviews. Like maybe this is my contribution. And to me, it's just sitting down and having a conversation. I didn't come with a pre set list of questions and I just want to talk about life and philosophy and I haven't even asked about the size mouthpiece that you play, right? Because nobody cares about that. I don't care about that sort of thing. Please don't edit this part out. Oh, okay. Okay. That's beautifully said. People need to hear that. Thank you. I appreciate it. You know what it reminds me of? And I think you and I have a a very similar style. Um, The conversational style reminds me of what we grew up watching on TV. Slow, steady, and deep. Slow. I love that I've got kids and some programs just fly by, but the ones that my kids were the most drawn to are the ones where the pace was slow. That's remarkable. And deliberate. Your kids are outliers. And, but I was drawn to the same program. It's meant for kids. And here I am in my fifties now, but it's, there's something about that. Even the Carson show, that's the first thing that came to mind. Yeah. And, but there, the, the pace of that was not frantic. No. And, and I'm going to get to Doc in a second for this reason, but I, I see that now, that you point that out, that there was real value in that. Yes. And it's a, different, it's a, a completely different type of thing they were going for. That was authentic and genuine. Mm-hmm. This thing, and you've seen it in, in media now, where the scenes are at most three seconds long. And there's a lot of science behind it where they're trying to, you know, constantly keep your dopamine levels up and, Mm -hmm. you know, they hook you up and they figure this out for video Mm -hmm. games and they transfer it to to TV and there's just no depth there. It's all flash. Yeah. And so think about Mr. Rogers. Yeah. There's nothing (laughs) like that anymore. Yeah. There is, but he was a special person on top of Mm -hmm. it. But it's, that was slow and patient. Yeah. I, there's so much value in that because mm-hmm. the other one is avoiding the moment, isn't it? Yeah. But yeah. You never get to sit still. You never get to appreciate. 
and it's, it's interesting. I just thought of this, and I think maybe this re- might resonate with you too. It, it both uh, that the three second thing is an attempt at manipulation of time, mm-hmm. but I think, and what I mean is, I think that what they're trying to get at is what really happens when you do take your time. So, the best example is the first time we sat down with our wives and we met them, you know, <laughs> or forever whoever you're you know watching. And you know, and you fall in love, and or you're in the process of falling in love. But that first conversation, those first conversations, you look at your watch, you're like six hours, right? Half an hour, <laughs> and that's an authentic time as a human construct, anyway. Mm-hmm. But when time pauses, that really means you're in the moment, and that's mm-hmm. what real great music making will draw an audience into the moment. It's not escapism; it's bringing them back to reality. Yeah. Right? bringing them into the moment and this moment's beautiful and this moment's beautiful that's and the other I think it's just an artificial way of trying to get there and if they don't get it they can move product this way yeah but not make connection now I gotta tell you two doc stories please (laughs) keep going I'll I'll tell you no there's a story I could tell you but I cannot repeat it it would make this an explicit content Mm. reading no but please I'll tell you my two stories one is I'll tell him backwards in time. Actually, three. The last time I saw Doc in person was Dave's retirement ceremony. So mm-hmm. he and Kathy and Ronnie and, and Avis and myself and Julie, my wife, we were at a, the table and we were the speakers. Mm-hmm. For, and he was hilarious then. But the, the time before that, he, Doc and Phil Smith, they are they have a holiday brass show they go around doing together. Mm-hmm. And... Phil emailed me and he says, I'm going to do that, this down in Charleston with the Charleston Symphony. And I, through Canadian, I did all these holiday brass shows with Phil and the New York mm-hmm. Philharmonic for many years. Even after I left Canadian, I kept doing it with them. Mm-hmm. And so he says, would you come down and do them? I'm like, yeah. So I came <laughs> down and Doc Solos, they're both playing and Phil still sounds great. And they're emceeing together and Doc tell he's playing for us in, in the rehearsal. He said, and it, it was a Christmas tune I can't remember the name of, but it was about, it was called Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Mm-hmm. He tells us the story, and it was a horrifying story with the, the tune's actually about. He says, everyone thinks this is a, a really heartfelt tune. He says, actually, the composer decided to leave this life shortly after. Mm. And Doc says, he offed himself. Like, wow. Oh God! And I'm like, okay, this gives a different meaning to it. And then when he plays it, it was, you could, it was something I hadn't heard out of a musician before. Mm. Uh, fast forward to the concert, and he tells the audience, same thing. Oh, oh my, you're really going to bring that up when I, and you know, because he was honest and authentic about it, it was not a negative. Mm-hmm. It was more of like an honoring this composer. Mm-hmm. And then, but the most amazing thing he did was uh, he played it on flugel. And we timed it in rehearsal and the concert. He played the last middle G for about 28 to 30 seconds. <laughs> and it wasn't circular breathed and it wasn't to show off. It was just a one note master class <laughs> on color and variance and depth and spin and momentum and 
All you need to do is, and that's the great masters are like that, aren't they? You just need to hear one note or maybe three notes at the most. <laughs> Good luck achieving that, but <laughs> go for it. But the best story, and this is going to tie in Ryan and Canadian Brass to mm-hmm. our, since uh, I know we're wrapping up, is that my second year with Canadian, we were at the Music Academy of the West, and Doc came in to do a, a wine auction to benefit the Music Academy because he mm-hmm. lived nearby in Santa Barbara at that point. Mm-hmm. And both Ryan and I were like, who's going to play with Doc? Right. Like we both wanted to do it. <laughs> I took three of our tunes and rearranged them for three trumpets. Oh, nice. And so then we went out to lunch before our rehearsal, and Doc tells us that he had just gotten over Bell's palsy. And the way he did it was buzzing a trombone mouthpiece. Mm-hmm. And so then I knew about Bell's palsy. This is, Bell's palsy is a virus most people have. It gets mm-hmm. The Chinese call it the wind disease. It gets activated by air conditioning on your face mm-hmm. too long. or mm-hmm. and But it's highly contagious. And I also knew Doc loved trying mouthpieces. And the way he tries his mouthpieces is, take the mouthpiece and you stick it all the way in the mouth and all the way in the saliva <laughs> dripping down. And so I, I had a plan. So I came to rehearsal and so Ryan and I both sat on either side of Doc tries Ryan's mouthpieces and then he turns to me and I had five mouthpieces. They're all decoys. The <laughs> ones I didn't use or so he takes right. everyone and he tries it. And then we're about to start, and we were rehearsing Amazing Grace, which used to be Ronnie's solo. Out of my pocket, I reach in, and I get, he says, what's that? I'm like, it, it's another mouthpiece. <laughs> and he takes his, let me see that. <laughs> okay, you can have it back. And I'm like, I, I got to go to the restroom, you know. Yeah. I drank too much at lunch. You know, scrubbing the mouthpiece. <laughs> so then we get to the, the, the auction. We prepared three pieces, and... We get up, we do our in, in, intro, and then we do Amazing Grace. And, you know, Doc has this bit where he gets to the end of the piece and he pretends he doesn't have enough endurance left and he can't play high. Mm-hmm. No. And where he still has a double C, by the way, folks. <laughs> and <laughs> at what, 92 or 93 now? 93 this, yeah. this month, yeah. And so we stop it then. He stops us and he points at this guy in the front and he says, Now, I've been watching you all night. You're a cheapskate. You keep bidding until the last round and you drop out. Big man. He says, so you're going to bid on a high F. He says, I'll give you the high C for free. And so he, wham, high C as big as anyone else's low G. And here's a D. He makes it all the way to E. He says, so so he got four grand out of this guy (laughs) to pay for the high F. And, and the way he gave it to him, and as he went down off the stage, sat in his lap, pointed the bell at his face this far oh my away, gosh. and he went to us, and we give the cord, and he goes, wham! The guy loved it. Here's your four grand. <laughs> and, never, and so we never got to play the other pieces. Like that, that was it. That was it. The whole building erupted, and they're just laughing on their – and, of course, you know, it was uh, – I'd never seen anything like that, and that's just who he is. Right? Yeah, thank goodness. But, yeah, yeah. So. And then he autographed my picture of me getting his autograph the first time I met him when I was nine. Mm-hmm. 
So I have a picture oh, of him. Great. I have a picture <laughs> of him and me together as he's autographing a picture of me when I was nine, and when he's autographing his Tandy Radio Shack London Sessions album. <laughs> That's fantastic, and you'll never give that up. No, no way. I've got a case. My first forty-five interviews were in person. Yeah, and I carried this little silver uh, trumpet case with me. At hard case, and everybody's autographed it. Doc, his big signature on one side, Ronnie's is the big one on the other side, and then I've asked everybody else sign, but don't. Of course, Jens was trying to get as close as he could to Doc's signature. I'm like, don't you dare! Yeah, but that's the fence around that signature. <laughs> yeah, it's full. I'll, I'll have to show it to you at some point when yeah. we ever meet in person, which I would love. I'm in Indianapolis every year with Music for All. We're gonna we're gonna have a beverage or a meal or something together when this is all over and and uh, celebrate yep. that we can be together again. Thanks, Larry. Take right. care. All right. Yeah. See ya. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Tune in next week for another great interview. And one last reminder that you can help support this podcast by becoming a subscriber at Patreon.com/studiohfl. Your support would be most appreciated. And another special thanks to Messina Covers, the Eastman Music Company, and Pickett Blackburn for their support of this podcast. Thanks again. Now, go practice. <laughs>